0: The Empire, well, actually, the Drawn trilogy was contracted to be three books at the same time. It was uh, offered to me in 1989. Uh, Veronica at Bantam Spectre just made a deal with uh, uh, Lucasfilm to do three novels. They suggested me, among other authors, Lucasfilm people decided they liked my style or my style would fit Star Wars best if the ones they were shown. And I got one of these out-of-the-beam phone calls, 4 o'clock on a Monday afternoon from my agent. With the understatement of the decade, Tim, we have a very interesting offer here. So it was a chance to play in the Star Wars universe, to uh, get to kind of continue the saga, picking up after Return of the Jedi. And after about 24 hours of panic at the very thought of it, I decided to go ahead with the project. So, Air came out in 1991, and as was mentioned, um, it showed that the Star Wars fandom was was still out there. Nobody really knew until the book came out.
1: Welcome, everyone from across the universe, to the Wampas Lair podcast. Star Wars is for everyone, so pull up a chair, get comfortable and join the conversation with your hosts, Carl LeClaire and Jason Hunt, here in the Wampa's Lair. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another exciting episode of the Wampa's Lair Podcast. This is episode number 428, Heir to the Empire, 30th Anniversary. I'm, as always, one of your hosts, Jason Hunt, and with me, the Grand Admiral Thrawn, to my Captain Pelion, we have Carl LeClaire.
2: Oh, uh, I guess I'll have to stomach being Grand Admiral Thrawn. <laughs> <laughs> uh I prefer Palion, but okay, I'll take I'll take Throne. He is quite bright, so I'll I'll take that as a credit to my uh uh lesser intelligence. I'll I'll take that as a
1: credit. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean I, I I kinda have to take Pelion because he is my favorite legend specific character. So we we've had this conversation on the show in the past, but it, I was reminded a bit yeah. by, I was reminded a bit in uh revisiting the story is like oh yes this is how we were introduced to him and it was nice to to see that so yeah but anyways
2: yeah well, good old captain palion he's he's in the tradition of so many of your you know favorite imperial officers like even good old uh captain Kennedy.
1: <laughs> yeah exactly where i was going he's, <laughs> he's he's a he's an old traditional guy and yeah uh, very, very set in his, uh, his his ways of order and procedure.
2: That's right. Um, so, <laughs> um, so yeah, we are so excited to to talk this historic Legends novel that really relaunched Star Wars in 1991. Thirty years ago, um, actually, just a few weeks ago, um, was when this book was first published. So, Jason, I haven't read this story in probably at least 15 years, possibly longer. So it was really fun revisiting the story itself. And you and I have never talked specifically about this particular book. So I'm looking forward to that conversation and you know, some of the key things that really stand out from this book, especially 30 years later. Um, but before yeah. we get into that conversation around Heir to the Empire, um, we had a giveaway – that we offered on last week's episode where we have a extra copy of a black series, Jar Jar Binks. And we would like to announce the winner of that giveaway. Congratulations to Jeffrey Fishbach! You sir have won a good old Jar Jar black series.
1: More than I like you. So <laughs> that's, that's from Jar Jar to Jeffrey.
2: So, <laughs> so congrats to Jeffrey. Thank you to everyone who, uh, you know hopped in on in the Instagram or on Twitter to to you know be involved with the giveaway. We have another giveaway coming up for you in just a few more weeks. excited about this one, so um, certainly uh, stay tuned for for that information um, but Jason, we also had a what I thought was going to be a relatively epic matchup from last week that turned out to be anything but epic it was pretty heavy-handed. <laughs> um, yeah. But it was cool to see so many folks weighing in, which I think shows the popularity of both of these relatively new Star Wars characters, um, and those, of mm. course, being Enfys Ness against Fennec Shand. Um, Jason, what did the Larians have to say in this not-so-epic bout?
1: <laughs> oh, well, I mean, it was epic in the amount of people that we had respond. Um, over 120 of you weighed in between uh twitter and and instagram on this matchup so thank you very very much everyone for that however it was rather one-sided um fennec shand came out on top 91 to 34 in terms of votes so uh yeah uh a bit a bit one-sided on that one um I might have some contrary thoughts, Carl. But first, what about you? Where did you come down on, on this matchup?
2: <laughs> well, I think the thing for me, um, I, I got to come down with the majority here. As much as I want to give it to Enfys, because I certainly prefer car- the character of Enfys. Not that I don't like Fennec. I like Fennec very much. But I just really love Enfys. Um, but the way I see it is Enfys, uh, we only know Enfis as a young woman. So we don't know what she might be like by the time she reaches Fennec's age, right? Fennec is, especially in Mandalorian, I mean, she is a skilled assassin who's been working in that field for 20 plus years. Um, so, and I think that's why I give Fennec the, the, um, kind of the edge. She's, she's been a tried and true assassin working for the empire, the Huts, the syndicates, whereas Enfys is a noble freedom fighter and certainly is skilled. But I think Fennec just has the advantage of years, um, and you know, Enfys. You know, I, I I think of the there are two great hand to hand combat scenes we get to see with both those characters, right? Enfys on top of the 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 mag train against uh, Beckett, where she easily kicks his butt. But then we also see Fenix Shan wipe the floor with Toro Calican. But I'm pretty sure I could wipe the floor with Toro Calican. So um, that's not saying much, but all the same, <laughs> she's toying with Toro the whole fight too. Like she's not even breaking a sweat. Um, but yeah, I I got to give I. I I don't think it's a blowout, Jason, but I do think Fennec takes takes it with a bit of an edge. But what do you think?
1: Oh, I I think... Um, I definitely agree Fennec has the edge when it comes to experience. But my thought process was, this is a matchup. Mm. If we're putting them in a matchup, they both know that they're there. And that takes away a lot of Fennec's edge because she is primarily... Uh, well, not maybe not primarily, but she is known... For her long distance, uh, you know, assassination. You know, she's the sniper. You know, among other things. But uh, that that takes away that advantage that Fennec has. And what we have seen from Enfys is that she is, I think, primarily a close combat fighter. Mm-hmm. And she is, you know, not only design, you know, uh, trained herself to, to be able to fight well close combat with. With that um, weapon of hers, the the axe with the gravity, you know, pommel or whatever it's called, um, but she's also got the uh, the fan guards to protect her from incoming blaster fire, so she can get up close. Yeah, and I think, I think once she closes the difference, her her raw ferocity and skill um, is going to put her just over the edge. So. I think Fennec, if Fennec can keep her at bay uh, and far enough away, she'll wear down Enfys. But I think, since, since it's a matchup situation, this is how it played in my head. Since it's a matchup situation, Enfys is going to be able to close the distance and get under the guard of Fennec and, and walk away from it. So, mm. that's where I came down. So I like it. But that gives, a, that gives us a 92 for Fennec Shand and a 35 for Enfys Nest. So, um, it's not even close, but uh, <laughs> that's all right. <laughs> but yeah, now it, anything other than a, a a close a close quarters matchup like this, Phoenix got it in the bag. Yeah, I'm gonna. I will admit that. So yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you for so, like you said, Jason. Epic number of responses. So that was awesome. Um, but certainly. Uh, as As the responses started to roll in, I was like, "All right, I can see why it 's going this way um mm-hmm. but uh yeah, so we will have a poll for you um uh, at the end of this episode, which i'm actually really excited to to share and and see how folks respond to this one too. I think this will be a uh hopefully breeding ground for some some neat insight uh next week
1: yeah um, exactly but uh and perhaps a future episode topic
2: yeah. Hey, hey, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, I just let's, threw that. Out. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, we're, we're planning on the podcast. Now, I, so <laughs> I like it. I, like, I think that's a great idea. In all honesty, so, um, but yeah, so we are uh, like we said. We you know thirty years of heir to the empire, um, published in May of nineteen ninety one. Um, I was a whopping five years old. Jason, you were probably what two?
1: Yes, yeah, I was two. So, so. <laughs> we
2: were we were quite quite the youngsters. Um, but you know, for anyone who obviously was a Star Wars fan when the original movies came out, Air to the Empire was something totally new. Obviously, the Marvel run of comics existed from the late seventies. I can't remember when they stopped running. I want to say the mid to late eighties. I don't know because I, I I'm just not into comics. But um uh. You know, but interestingly enough, and this was a conversation we actually had a couple of weeks ago about talking Shadows of the Empire. But, you know, obviously a lot of people were very blown away when Disney acquired Star Wars that they chose to make all these other stories now legends, right? They're no longer canon stories. Um, but interestingly enough, there were a lot of Star Wars stories through the Marvel Comics and either, even Splinter of the Mind's Eye um, that were essentially in 1991 declared to be legends they didn't use that language but that's essentially what they did they didn't count those as canon stories and this was going to be a whole new launch of a new canon for the star wars galaxy and timothy zahn was going to usher that in with heir to the empire and um you know as he points out in the the short interview from the top of the the show there um, part of the reason behind launching this was to see, is there still a market for Star Wars? Are folks still invested and do they still care? Right, Because by 1990, 1991, the toys weren't being made anymore. The, the short-run cartoon series of Ewoks and Droids had been off the air for several years. I mean really all you had was <laughs> these really silly Marvel comic stories with a green rabbit. <laughs> um, so, you know, Jack yes yes and i have some friends that really love that character i I don't know the character so i just find it silly to have an easter bunny in star wars but that's
1: okay um (laughs) i i read like one or two comics with him in it and he's just like uh you know smart Alec. he's a total smart like it's like if you made bugs bunny angry all the time (laughs) nice so um
2: well, yeah, so, you know, in 91, it was, what do people think? And Heir to the Empire remained on the New York Times bestseller list for months. Um, yeah. So it became very apparent that there was still very much um, an interest in Star Wars. And, you know, early on in in that time, so Timothy Zahn was was picked by, you know, uh, I believe it was Delray at the time. No, Bantam. I think Bantam was doing Star Wars books at that time. And... George Lucas approved of the initial story treatment that Timothy Zahn shared. So George was very involved in the early days of Legends um, and, and kind of gave the parameters of what was allowed to be talked about and what wasn't. So, for instance, you couldn't write any stories about the Clone Wars. You couldn't reference them because he was already starting to plan the prequel trilogy. Um, and you you couldn't um, kill off any main characters. Those were the two big stipulations from George. Um, you know, I I would still love like a really in depth. This might exist, and I just don't know of it. But I'd love like an in depth look at how the story treatments for Heir to the Empire kind of evolved, um, and what George's feedback might have been. Because I feel like that'd just be really neat to know. Um, but yeah, I mean this this story really proved that there was a hunger, and you know, popular culture still for Star Wars, and it really was the breeding ground for George to actually start actively thinking about writing that prequel trilogy um yeah
1: so you you could say due to the success of this trilogy and the subsequent uh you know publishing run of star wars novels that paved the way for us to get the special editions and then the prequels so uh you can blame or thank timothy zahn however you choose to see fit um for continued star wars (laughs) For sure.
2: For sure. Um, So, yeah, you know, this this is a story that I remember. um, I mean, the first trilogy of Star Wars books I read as a kid was the Jedi Academy trilogy by Kevin J. Anderson, which was published, I believe, two years after this. I think those came out in ninety four. Um, oh So that would make that three years later, but my math sucks. Um, but and I, and I loved that trilogy. And I, I know the Thrawn trilogy was the second trilogy I read. And I, I I really liked it when I was a kid. I didn't like it nearly as much as the Jedi Academy trilogy. And I remember in the Thrawn trilogy liking each subsequent book more than the previous. So Heir to the Empire, for instance, was my least favorite of the trilogy. Um, and that's not to say I didn't like it. But what was interesting is my, my plan was as I, as I reread it this time, I was like, all right, if it really grabs me, I'll maybe I'll sit down and read the whole trilogy. Um, I'm just going to own up front right now. It didn't quite grab me like that. so And I'd also been reading a lot of Star Wars Legends this past month. So I think I was just also a little bit like, all right, I need something besides Star Wars books for, for a little bit. Um, so that's also that's- part of the truth. But yeah, I mean I, I enjoyed Heir to the Empire. I think just to initially start the conversation, if I was going to give it you know out of five stars, I'd probably give it three. Um so uh like there are some really neat things about it. I think for me, Jason, I appreciate what Heir to the Empire is for star Wars history more than i than I particularly love the story itself, if that makes
1: sense it does it does uh i I think I'd probably rate it a little bit higher uh it also uh, hmm here's a weird thing. on the one hand, it seems like it's setting up a big, expansive story.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But a lot of what happens in this book in particular is very small. So it seems like, uh, you know, and it's probably just due to the nature of, of what they were trying to do, see if things would could would work and stuff like that. But it seems like there's like, hey, there's more! But we're just taking a tentative first step into <laughs> that. To see if you're gonna bite. So, um, and and I can kind of you know it, it, with hindsight see that in in the way that this um, this book is written, and I think that you know that's just due to the nature of the situation that they were writing in, you know, Timothy Zahn was writing in, and the the company was was you know experimenting with, um, which allowed the subsequent books to just go all in on what had already been established. Uh, later so but I would I probably give us a th- three and a half to four stars out of five um, I enjoyed it it was nice it was concise it held my attention hmm. um, I liked a lot of the new characters that, that are introduced to us in this book so uh, it wasn't I won't say it's a spectacular book but it was good, so uh, and and it and it definitely laid the groundwork for potential, you know, big things in the future. Yeah. So, I think I think that's what I appreciate about this book, and obviously, it is the first part in a a, a trilogy. So, a lot of it is set up, right. anyways. Absolutely, so.
2: yeah. Yeah, I mean I would say – I mean I, I found the story to be a little bloated. Like it's a 400-page book that I think would have been a much better story in 350 pages. Um, OK. So like I think it could have been a little bit of a tighter story. Um, again, I'm no writing critic or anything by any means. But uh, I, I did find myself skimming certain parts because it was like, all right, this is getting a little redundant. Um, so that's why, again, like when I find myself reading, like that happens in a lot of novels I read, to be completely honest. And that's just my perspective; it's not everybody's. Um, but you know, the thing I'm most interested in now, and I, and I think it's it's interesting going back and reading something like *Heir to the Empire* in light of something like you know the the new High Republic stories, for instance, which are written very, very brilliantly and very, uh, very character-driven stories. Um, and, you know, I, I I've said this before, especially when we were reviewing a lot of the High Republic early early wave earlier this year. I, I just find a lot of the new uh, canon authors to be I don't know they're just they're just better writers in my opinion, and I I don't mean that to be disdainful to Legends authors. Um, I think books were also just I mean things are just different now. I mean that was thirty years ago, right? Yeah. Um, so it's it's I think it's yeah. unfair to hold that standard to something that's from a different time period. Um, but that oh. said, like, Heir to the Empire, like... And this is... To me, this is my biggest issue with... And By the way, I hope I'm not coming across... I don't mean to be coming across so negative at the top. But I do want to get into some of the things I really loved in this book because there's a lot of them. But... Uh, and I know I've made this point before, but I... To me, a lot of the old Legends books, the reason I don't like them as much as I probably did when I was a child is because they're so plot-driven. They're so much about, like... um Telling just like a fun, exciting story um, without necessarily really delving into uh, the depths of a character, if that makes sense. And 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 maybe that's just my perspective. Maybe others are like, are you kidding? There's so much character depth here. Um, I, I find them to be a little bit on the shallower side. Um, but I think that's, again, like that's why I loved them as a kid. I don't want super deep emotional character stories when I'm 9, 10, 11 years old. Um, but now, as a 35 year old adult, like I, I appreciate those stories a bit more. Um, so again, that's it's just different standards, right? It's what 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 is your subjective taste? Um, so that said, uh, you know, I think Timothy Zahn did some really interesting things with our main heroes, you know, specifically Han, Luke, and Leia. Yeah. Um, and it, 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 if you're alright with it, I kind of want to jump into one of the first things that I really enjoyed about the start of this book. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Which is Luke having a final conversation with, with Ben Kenobi. Um, You know, it's, it's really, really awesome to, there's this moment where uh, Ben shows up and he essentially says, you know, you, you, I'm proud of you. You've done great work. Um, There's still a lot of work to be done. And Luke essentially says like, I'm not sure if I'm ready. And and Obi-Wan says to him, he says, listen, you're the, you're not the last. He says, you're the last of the old Jedi, but the first of the new, right? So he's really encouraging Luke to, again, live out those that final command of Yoda to pass on what he's learned. And Obi-Wan is really imparting onto Luke, like, I believe in you. I, I know you can do this. And, what's, uh, and this was one of my favorite character moments for Luke is one Obi-Wan kind of just fades away. Luke is left feeling very orphaned again. And he kind of reflects on, you know, I lost my aunt and uncle. And then I lost Ben once, and then I lost Yoda, and then I lost my father, and now Ben's gone forever, right? So yeah. it's, it starts with this really low point for Luke in the book. Um, and a lot of Luke's, uh, I don't know, I guess, uh, character arc in this book, that I, and I do really like this, is the level of doubt he has. He doesn't quite yeah. feel ready to train a new generation of Jedi, you know he's very nervous about because he, he knows he wants to start with Leia, but he's very nervous and unsure of himself. And I thought that was a really bold choice for Timothy Zahn to make, right? The I think for a lot of fans, you know, myself included, you know, we we see Luke coming out of Return of the Jedi as this fully formed hero, and he's he's going to just go fight the good fight forever and, and be flawless. But even back in ninety one, Timothy Zahn says. Essentially, gives us the character yeah. and says, "Yeah, he won the fight, but he's he 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 closed one chapter, but now there's this massive new chapter, and it kind of scares him. It's very intimidating to Luke, and I think that's very human. Which, by the way, is I think something Ryan Johnson beautifully tapped into for how he characterized Luke in Last Jedi.
1: Um, so it's, even in this, I was going to say,
0: yeah, it's,
1: what, yeah I, I was going to say that that sort of that doubt, that questioning, that uncertainty." uh is a part of Luke's character, you know, in, in the sequel trilogy, and it's, you know, probably in part inspired by Heir to the Empire, you know, to be perfectly honest. Yeah. You know, and and it makes sense. You know, obviously this is just the beginning for Luke and the, the the legends expanded universe. And he goes on to become, you know, the one of the greatest Jedi masters to ever live, you know. Throughout the, the books, but those books span 30, 40 years, and he goes through so much to get to that point, and I think sometimes we forget that he started here, you know, having to say goodbye to Ben and being left alone again. Yeah. So, yeah, that's a, that's a big deal for someone who grew up knowing he was an orphan living with his aunt and uncle.
2: Yeah, and and I think it's an interesting point too to point out like Luke, right? Luke's not fully alone, right? He's got Han and Leia and Chewie and the droids. Right. Like he's got this newfound family, you know, that common theme of Star Wars. But at the same time, Obi-Wan and Yoda were his connection to the Force world, right? They were his connection point yeah. to fully understanding his place in that element of the story. And now he doesn't have that anymore, right? Leia and Han can't help him with that part of his journey because it's not something that they know. Um, So, you know, like to me, it's like I remember growing up when we, we had a really great pastor at my church who ended up leaving and we got this other person who was terrible. And it was just like this feeling of disorientation because, you know, there wasn't like another person in my life that could fill that spiritual gap because that was that particular person's role in my life. Um, So for Luke to lose Ben, it's to lose, you know, a very, a very crucial part of, of his own development into this story of what does it mean for me to be a Jedi?
1: Right. Right. And, you know, Ben offers some words of encouragement, but he doesn't, you know, relent in the fact that he has to go. It's it's his time to pass on, you know. Yeah. Into the force more completely. So, uh, he gives some words of encouragement and goes on his way. Uh, and it's, it was definitely something that seemed odd to me at the time, especially when I first read it. I was like, well, well why? Why, why, why is that the case? You know, I don't understand. Uh, but I think it, it makes more sense because obviously Luke is going to have to learn how to stand on his own. Mm -hmm. And so this forces him to do that. Although we get the idea that he's going to look to find someone else to fill that spot before, you know, before he learns how to stand on his own. So, (laughs) and that becomes a driving part of the villain side of the story in this novel. So,
2: yeah, well, let's, let's, take a quick like let's look at them a bit right the The biggest obvious new character to this story is Grand Admiral Thrawn yes what do you think of oh, Grand man. Admiral Thrawn I mean and obviously right Timothy Zahn has brought him back you know he, he, he's reintroduced in Rebels and now he's written you know he's on his second Thrawn trilogy already in the new canon um, mm-hmm. but what did you think of this early introduction of Thrawn what what's your you know what do you think as you were you know taking this story in
1: well, I think part of why uh, I I identify with Pelion is because I don't understand Thron, hmm. uh, and Pelion is definitely the audience's viewpoint into this new character. Hmm. You know, he's a he's brilliant, sort of beyond normal, uh, and you know, definitely sort of you know it's been he's been referred to as the sherlock holmes of the empire essentially you know he he can you know find clues in the artwork uh to determine how people will react in certain situations and if he pushes things in a certain way and his his uh deductive logic is beyond compare but sometimes seems to stretch credulity so, I, I think he's a fantastic character uh, in the sense that he's a very different kind of Imperial villain. Uh, you know, he's not just bombastic and, you know, overpowering and things like that. But, uh, you know, he's also still a threat, very, very much a threat. Uh, you know, but in a new, unexpected way that our heroes have never dealt with before. And I think I like him more for what he represents in terms of a challenge to the heroes than I like him for the character himself hmm. if that makes sense sure um i mean there there was I forget the specific scene in the book because i I listened to it I didn't read it so I, I couldn't like bookmark a you know a passage and say, oh yes, this is what I wanted <laughs> to refer to specifically but um it was a specific moment where, uh, oh, it was when our heroes made the switch between the Millennium Falcon and the Lady Luck. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, Chewie and Leia take the Lady Luck and go to Kushtiq and Lando hops up the Millennium Falcon and they go off on their decoy adventure. Um, and Thrawn is like, ah, well, this obviously is, is kind of what happened here. And Palion is like, I don't, you can't know that for sure. And I'm like, exactly. Yeah. Like how in the world did you come to that conclusion? And he explains the conclusion. I just still don't understand if it actually makes sense. Mm. So that was one of those moments where it's just like, okay, we might be stretching credulity just a little bit here. Um, but overall, I, I think he's a good character. I think he's a good foil, I should say, I think he's a good foil for our heroes um, and i like I like him in this book for that reason, yeah, because he's something new and unexpected that they have to uncover and figure out how to uh, how to defeat so what about you what do you think of Thron
2: um I, so I mean I'm, I, I'll be honest. I've, I've never been a, thra- a fan of Thrawn um, and this reread was a reminder of why I'm not. Um, but I also had a really interesting conversation with uh, two of my friends over the weekend and my one friend, she is nuts about Thrawn, absolutely crazy about him and gave me a really neat perspective. And while she's still not read The Heir of the Empire, she's, she's gotten into Thrawn via Rebels and now is reading the new books and, lo- and loving them. Um, But my complaint about Thrawn is is I don't like how he just knows everything. It makes him to me seem very boring Um, because it's like, oh, yes, well, I knew they were going to do this. And now I know they're going to do that. And it's like, wow, what a boring villain. Um, And my friend. Yeah, I
1: will say I will say in in Rebels and the newer stuff he makes more sense in how he comes to the conclusions i think uh timothy son has had more time to figure that out Mm, over the years sure and it's making more sense now in my opinion than it did with heir to the empire so just a quick caveat there yeah
2: that's a great point um and my friend said the reason he loves thrawn in that story is because he's like you know nothing's more scary than a villain who's always one step ahead of you and he's like, you know, yeah. he's like, he goes to. And my friend's point was, you know, to me, a, a protagonist who seems to know everything is a very boring protagonist. But an antagonist who knows everything makes it. How do we beat this person, right? Um, how do we outsmart them? Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, you know, Thrawn does lose the the little. You know, he loses the battle at the end of the book, if you will. Like he has yet to lose the war, mm-hmm. and he's going to continue to. Rise as Dark Force rising Rising's title implies for the second book, but um, mm-hmm. I like how Thrawn is so confident and sure of himself. But the one thing, and I, this is the one thing I kind of actually liked about Thrawn's character in this book, is there's a similarity I, I found between him and the Emperor, in that. Um, Just like the Emperor seems to think he knows everything ahead of time, and he seems to think so because of his connection to the Force. Well, for Thrawn, it's this weird ability to study art, which I still don't think makes any sense. But that aside, you know, Thrawn just seems to be this brilliant tactician who understands people's cultural art in some ways that allows him to stay one step ahead. But the one thing both Thrawn and the Emperor can't seem to predict is the power of – what friendship can can do together right so at the end of the book essentially han and luke and lando just kind of pull some crazy stunt that Thrawn never would have anticipated because who would have done that um except for han luke and lando <laughs> you know what i mean um, right so exactly so, so I, I appreciate that part for sure because it does make him a good foil um but you know for me i mean my favorite kind of star wars villains are you know uh, anyone who's been listening to the show for any amount of time, like I mean, the force side of Star Wars is my favorite aspect of Star Wars. And that goes for villains as well. I'm much more invested in a villain who's a dark side user or some sort of, you know, uh, even even the Sisters, right, who use a corruption of the dark side. Like that's the side of villainy I, I I'm particularly fond of. So a military tactician, that's just not a character that I particularly connect to or, or enjoy. So again, that's not a slam on Thrawn. Again, that's about personal preference. Um But he is the thing the thing that I've always liked about Thrawn in this book and as well as throughout this trilogy is how critical Thrawn is of the Emperor and Vader. Um You know, specifically, Mm. like, you know, he he recognizes how a lot of officers are always afraid when they make a mistake that he's going to kill them. But, you know, he kind of reflects on, I'm not Vader. I'm not a monster who's just going to kill you for a mistake. Um, And he also is very critical of the Emperor for um, trying to be in control of every little thing, especially the military. And as I was reading it, it, it reminded me a bit of something from World War II history, which is, you know, Field Marshal Rommel, the famous Nazi general. Um, was quite a brilliant military tactician, but Hitler kept getting in his in his way, and that's why they kept losing. I mean, thank God for that, because the hell with the Nazis—they suck, right. <laughs> and they all should burn in hell. But um, that said, right, like Rommel was this military genius, but the leader, this dictator, kept getting in the way, and. The Emperor, in Thrawn's opinion, was the biggest problem. The reason they lost at Endor more than anything was because the Emperor th- thought he was a brilliant military tactician and he wasn't, <laughs> um, according to Thrawn. So I like that. Like I like that Thrawn can right. be this critical villain of our main villains. Like it, It's really neat to see that. And and Pelion, um I love the way you describe him, Jason, as he's kind of our view of this very new and unknown type of villain character. But the thing that I always mm-hmm. love, Paleon reflects on, is what if Thrawn had been in Endor, right? Um, you know, he's just so confident yeah. that things would have been different. Um, and of course, the reason Thrawn's not there is because he's out in the Outer Rim, um, not the Excuse me, he's, he's in the Unknown Regions, I believe. Um, yeah. He's on a mission yeah. from the Emperor, but you know, they obviously introduce even in this book, as you know, far back as Thrawn's introduction, that he wasn't popular among the Imperial elite because he's not human. Um, and I liked that, right? Like I, that's the one thing about Thrawn's character that I definitely really think is neat. Like this was a fun, fun idea to bring into, um, Imperial storytelling of what's it like to have an alien in command and how did he get there? Um, so right. Yeah. So like, there's a lot of things about him. I appreciate he's just not my type of villain. That's all. Um, so that's
1: fair enough. But you you mentioned one of your favorite types of villains is uh, you know those that are force sensitive. Uh, what's your opinion on Jorus Sabayoth?
2: <laughs> what a character!
1: <laughs> oh, so, well, what actually, a what a nut
2: Yeah, so we get we don't get a ton of him in this book. To be fair, like he really <laughs> comes to shine in Last Command, and I always oh. remember really enjoying Last Command. Um, but because uh, I think he is the one responsible for cloning Luke. Um, with the, with the Luke severed hand, but, uh, yeah, he is an interesting character. So some, I do know this for sure. Um, one behind the scenes thing is that, uh, initially Joris, uh, was supposed to be a clone of Obi-Wan Kenobi. That was in Timothy Zahn's original treatment, but George Lucas said, no, you can't do that. Um, so that's why he just made him this, um, different cloned Jedi. Um, who falls to the dark side? Uh, he's a very interesting character, and, and I feel like again, *Air to the Empire* doesn't give a ton about him, so uh, right, I, I don't, I don't have a strong opinion on him either way. Like, I think he's an interesting character, um, and and you know, I like when we first meet him that he's essentially, uh, you know, he's kind of this overlord on this entire planet, and you know. Um, it's it's neat how the people almost uh he's almost reverenced like a godlike figure. Um and he's the he's <laughs> yeah. the keeper of the Emperor's like storehouse essentially, right? Like um he's yes. there, kind of it's is Wayland, is that the name of the planet if I'm remembering correctly? Wayland, yeah.
1: yeah. Mount Tantis on the planet yeah. Wayland.
2: Yeah, which it just like all those words are so mythological to me. <laughs> you know, they have <laughs> they have such a like neat mythological weight to them. Um so, yeah, I mean, he, he's an interesting character for sure. I think he presents, um, you know, he's going to be the, the force foil to Luke's journey throughout this trilogy. <laughs> um, yeah. But I think he, that said, he also introduces this whole new concept in Star Wars um, of the uh, – I don't know how to pronounce it. Maybe you will because you did the audiobook, The Yessal Army. Um, mm.
1: Yeah, Ysalamiri.
2: Ysalamiri, right? So these creatures that create force bubbles. Um, yeah uh, so right they like when Thrawn shows up on Wayland and Joris goes to shoot him with force lightning it just kind of dissipates around him he 's like what 's go what what sort of magic is this and it 's like haha i 've got a easel army
1: <laughs> yes. um, essentially a fuzzy space salamander yeah uh, fuzzy giant space salamander, so you know <laughs> yeah. what do you think
2: what did you, what did you think of Joris
1: uh, i mean you 're right we don 't get terribly much uh, about him in this, but I, they definitely are setting him up to be, you know, um, a not only an interesting foil for Luke in particular, but also a potential you know, spanner in the works for Thrawn. Uh, you know, because he he's not He's not devoted to the cause of the empire at all. He is he is out for his own power and you know whatever shape he decides that should take at this point. So uh, that's that's the interesting thing about him is he he has the potential to not only be uh, a threat to to our heroes but also a stumbling block or a or a, an obstacle for the villains, so he's sort of like this, you know, villain-adjacent, uh, you know, character who who has the potential to trip everyone up, uh, but that's likely just going to get him killed in the end, you know, um, so, <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I I thought he was interesting, and, uh, you know, <laughs> it also introduces Timothy Zahn's interesting uh effect that he has on clones. Um, you know, it's it's the original character is Joris Sabayoth, but this one is Jorus Sabayoth. So if you're a clone, you just sort of like uh at some <laughs> point during the name. So um you know, because we'll get Luke and Luke um <laughs> later. So <laughs> Yeah. I just I always thought that was a weird choice that yes. was made. It's like, yeah, it's a clone except there's a mispronunciation of the the name somewhere in order to just establish a difference between the original person and the clone, I guess. I don't know, but it was <laughs> yeah. just a an interesting choice and not one that I I ever quite understood why, but it's just kind of amusing.
2: Yeah, I mean it's it's funny cuz like when you think of some of these uh, interesting choices that were made in this trilogy, you know thirty years ago. Um, you know things like the Emperor being back in episode nine, not so crazy. <laughs> you know Star Wars <laughs> Star Wars has often had a lot of really bizarre, fun things, um, and I think you know I think the way that Timothy Zahn chose to deal with aspects of the force um, for instance, are a little a little different, you know. Um, right. So the, the force was I mean, the force is so abstract um, through the original trilogy. Right. There's never like any hard definitions. You know, Ben Kenobi gives a tiny little intro. Yoda gives his short little dissertation on it. And that's really it. Um, yeah. So, it, you know, there was kind of an open slate of what to do with it. Um, so, you know, I've, I've never liked the idea of the Yissel Army or I no, I keep saying it wrong, but that's just how I say it. Um <laughs> And, and I still don't. I, I think it's a silly thing in Star Wars. Um, I even remember as, as a 10-year-old being like, that doesn't seem to make any sense. But um, but it, again, like I know Timothy Zahn's reasoning for it was, you know, he, he talked about like I needed to find something that made the Force powers, you know, somewhat limited. I had to keep them in check in a way. That wouldn't mm-hmm. allow Luke to quickly become like this superhero character, which is valid. But I think the better way, to, he, he already kind of had reasons for that. You know, he like we were kind of talking about, he really presents Luke as this character full of doubt. Um, and that's what, you know, this is why I think like Ryan Johnson took those ideas and just gave them a very mature bent as opposed to something silly like, well, we need some sort of creature that dampens this force. No, you don't need that. All you need is to weaken his sense of self and, and create that doubt. That was what happened to Anakin in the prequels. That's what, you know, that's, what's going to happen to, to Luke in between the originals and sequels. Um, so, you know, it, it's, that was an interesting route. Um, one thing there, there's a particular part in the book where Luke is, again, there's, there's a scene where he's training with Leia. Um, He's training her with, he, she's using his lightsaber um, and he's training her how to use it. And I think they're, I think they're using a remote droid and afterwards, you know, it's a very brief in, uh, scene, and Luke is reflecting on, you know, uh, what if, what if he's not the right teacher for her? And he keeps thinking about how Ben failed his father, how Ben failed Vader, and he's like, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Ben, Ben was essentially a hubristic guy who thought, yeah, I can train him just as well as Yoda. Um, and Luke is thinking, well. Gee, if Ben couldn't do it, why – what makes me more qualified, right? Um, so again, like I, I really love – I think that's one of my favorite things I enjoyed about the book, this time reading it. And that's obviously nothing I would have picked up on when I was 13 years old. Um, but I really liked how he really draws out like the fact that Luke is worried he might let the galaxy down, um, yeah. which I think is a very Luke thought. <laughs> you know oh
1: very much you know the the idea that oh man i've got the weight of the galaxy on my shoulders and i'm the only one who can handle this uh now what <laughs> yeah. is is very much a luke thought you, you know he's <laughs> he's always sort of being thrust just beyond his abilities uh <laughs> or where he thinks his abilities are and I, I think the interesting thing about that scene is that he kind of goes into this, this almost meditative state as he runs through all these ideas and these thoughts and he's trying to like focus and, and, and move past it and as, he, and he does that while he's fighting the remote and completely loses track of time and, you know, uses up the 20 minute time limit that it has. And he's, you know, drenched in sweat and exhausted, but he's just like, you know, fighting this thing, uh, you know, while he's trying to process all of those thoughts, um, and it's a very interesting, you know, side note to all that. Like, he he gets lost in, in, in these things, and uh, and doesn't even realize that he's demonstrating some very incredible skills at the time, um, while he's questioning everything.
2: Mm. Yeah. Um. Well, you know we're well into this conversation now, and I think it's we got we got to obviously bring up the other big new character <laughs> that's introduced in this in this trilogy and in this book, which is of course Mara Jade. Um, yeah. What do you what you know? What was your take on um, Mara Jade uh, in her introduction and in, in in this particular book?
1: Okay. There's there's a couple of things. With Mara Jade, um, I think overall I really like her character. I think she's a good new character for, uh, for the story. Uh, I I think she's a uh, an interesting character. You know the <laughs> uh, the idea that she is. Just hell bent on taking down Luke um, in that way because of because of what he did to her, but the fact that he has no idea that he's done that to her is a really fascinating uh, relationship dynamic, and I love that. I think it's actually really really interesting to me. Uh, the only thing that really kind of not drives me nuts, but is irks me a little bit, is where they are to have crossed paths mm. um, you know at Jabba's palace and everything like that and, and the the idea of, of how she might have been able to stop him so it's I don't think that works I, I feel like it should have been something that uh, you know Honestly, I feel like the the mission to take him down is totally fine for, for her to have uh, been given. But I feel like it would have been stronger if they had created another event in which she missed him by that much just before Return of the Jedi. Mm. And because I feel like Forcing her essentially just off screen. I think it's something that they felt like they had to do for, for the book and, you know, just to, to relate it back to the movie. And there's another thought I I wanted to uh, touch on this later, Uh, but because they were really testing the waters with this book, they, they had to tie her so closely into already established events. And the only real established events they're working from are the films at this point. Um, in terms of this book. So I just don't think that part of her backstory works. I think everything else is great. And I think it, it puts her in a very unique and, a, you know, fascinating situation and the journey of the two of them through the murker forest after they've crash landed is probably some of my favorite stuff in this book uh and and the the antagonistic relationship she has towards him, but him just trying to be like, I just wanna help. I just wanna, you know, figure this out and we can move on. And I think that's that's one of my favorite uh, you know, aspects of this book uh is is that journey through the forest. Um I really like that stuff. So I I think I think she's a great character. Overall, I just think the specific instance in her backstory of where she is supposed to have just missed Luke is a bit forced um, and doesn't quite work for me.
0: Yeah.
2: yeah. Um, You know, it's it's funny because, like, you know, obviously today, 30 years after this story, Mara Jade is one of the most beloved Legends characters in Star Wars. Um, Mm -hmm. And interestingly enough, she's never been a character I've... I've just never had any strong feelings either way for her. Like, to me, it's just like, okay, she's cool. That becomes Luke's wife. Neat. Um, and uh, it was actually, I actually really enjoyed reading how she's introduced here because she really is presented as kind of this wounded character and mm-hmm. and really trying to figure out, well, somewhat in a similar way. I mean, her and Luke's journeys have a little bit of a similarity far as they're two characters who are, trying to make sense of what to do next, where to go next. You know, for Luke, Luke's – they're almost opposites in a way because Luke's is meant to be – like, his is kind of optimistic. Like, all right, I've, I've accomplished these great things. Now there's this beautiful future line before me, but I'm a kind of afraid of it. Like, what if I'm not ready to train the new Jedi? Whereas Mara is, is like, the person who destroyed my world is at my fingertips. I need to kill them. But if I do, who am I then? Um, right. And something I enjoyed about mara jade there's there 's the scene where she 's talking to Talon, Talon card um, and she 's talking to him about like you know what she was doing after the fall of the empire right because air of the Empire takes place five years after Return turn of the jedi so she 's had five years of kind of aimless wandering until um, i mean not five full years because she eventually does meet up with Talon Card and essentially just become you know part of his smuggling. Uh, fr- franchise, if you will, uh and that particular story beat. And again, this is what's kind of neat because there's so many new Star Wars stories in the past 30 years. She kind of reminded me a little bit of Asajj Ventress in that way, right? So when Asajj, yeah. you know, Asajj gets dumped by Dooku, um, and she's trying to find her way and find her purpose. You know, she she becomes a bounty hunter for a little while, um, and, and that's of course after Mother Talzin's. You know, kind of taken away from her as well. So when she loses everything, she kind of becomes this like weight. You know this this lost soul looking for a purpose. And I found that some similarities there with her and Mara Jade. Um, and that honestly made me like Mara Jade a little bit more because I really like um, you know Asajj Ventress. She's a great character. Um, yeah. So yeah, like it it, it, it kind of gave me a different Star Wars reference point of looking at this new character, th- this old character in a new light. And it made yeah. me like her a bit more. So, yeah, like, uh, I really, I, for the first time really ever in my life, like, I actually really enjoyed Mara Jade in this story. And, and you, like you're saying, like, those scenes of her and Luke making their way through the forest on my- Merker, or Micro, however you say it, um, it is some really neat adventure storytelling. And, and you do get, like, little bits of her, you know, there's, like, this slow opening up process for, for her to Luke. And, you know, cause he, he is, he's just totally like, you know, WTF, why, why do you hate me so much? What did I do to you? You know? Right. Um, and you know, because she, she just hates him so much. Like if she tells him any of her truth in a way that gives Luke some power over her. So she doesn't want to do that. But over time, like she does at least like, say, here's, you know, here's what you took away from me. You took my whole livelihood away from me. You took my purpose away. Um, and, but, uh, Yeah, so like I appreciated that part of her character, Um, but like you, Jason, I did the thing that also like kind of hung me up was, you know, this whole like kind of to me felt a little forced. Now again, in 1991, I bet you this was awesome because again, like, it was like oh cool, like this is a neat reference to something I can look for in the background next time I watch Return of the Jedi. It feels a little forced today, but I don't think it would have 30 years ago. Um, But it is right, like the fact that she is. I mean. It's cool to learn that there's this thing called the Emperor's Hand. Like, that's something we would never heard of. That's, that's pretty neat. Um, and uh, it's, it's weird to think that she was there at Jabba's palace to kill Luke. Um, because, you know, so the way she kind of explains it is Palpatine was aware of Darth Vader trying to recruit Luke to overthrow him. So he mm-hmm. wants to snip that in the bud by having Mara kill Luke. But if you really think about it, that makes no sense because <laughs> in Return of the Jedi, it's very clear that the Emperor wants Luke, <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah. um, so, like, again, like it's it's a neat way of trying to connect her into the overall story. But in my honest opinion, even with what you just had in – up through the original trilogy, it doesn't really make any sense. Like, It's very clear that Palpatine wants Luke. Like, He's well aware of what Vader's up to, but he's not threatened by it. So to introduce this plot point as if the Emperor felt threatened um, diminishes the Emperor's uh, hubristic might, if you will. Um, so I didn't particularly love that story, Bent. But um, again, overall, I, I really came to appreciate Mara in this story.
1: Yeah, no, she, she's a, definitely a uh, an interesting and a fascinating character. And um, one, I'm a little disappointed that we haven't gotten back in the new canon. Um, I mean, not that I necessarily think she's essential, but I think it's something where, you know, in some way, shape or form, it might have been nice in some of the new canon to to get Mara Jade back mm-hmm. because you know, the, the whole, you know, idea, op- occupation of the emperor's hand is 100% something that he would have done. Like have these people at his beck and call and, you know, even outside of Vader. And we've seen him working outside of, of Vader uh, with some of the other, you know, legends and and new canon material out there, you know, including Inquisitors, uh, you know, the there was that group of of science, you know, the science division in Rogue One. Well, oh, no, 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 no. They, you know, this. No, they, in one of the comics, there was sort of like the these these people who were using science and, tech and technology to replicate the Force. Uh, or or force abilities and stuff, you know, um, I I couldn't remember the the term for them, but yeah, there were, there were those people, uh, you know, things like that, 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 that he's used outside of Vader, you know, partially to test Vader, but partially because he wants to have his fingers and other people at his disposal to do what he wants. And so the idea of the Emperor's hand, 100% something that he would have, you know, Mm. um, So even if, you know, Mara wasn't sent to kill Luke specifically, the idea that an Emperor's Hand, whose sole purpose was to do will and bidding of her master, uh, would find themselves angry and adrift when Luke kills the Emperor. Yeah. From her point of view, you know. So, (laughs) but yeah, it's... uh, it's an she's an interesting character and I, I really liked her I felt like she was one of the stronger characters in the book. For sure. So
2: Yeah, for sure. Um Yeah, yeah. Um uh, and and obviously right, like this is this is the first book of a trilogy, so she's just being introduced. Right. Um and yeah, I mean I I don't fully remember where her full story art goes. I mean I know by the time we get to Last Command, I mean she she does show off the fact that she's got some force training and some lightsaber lightsaber combat training because um, mm-hmm. she I think she fights Luke for a little bit at the end of Last Command while Luke is fighting Joris. So uh, yeah, yeah. I
1: think I think she kills Luke. I think you're right. And therefore, yes, and, and therefore it, like, you know yep, frees her achieves, up. A bit. Achieves her her mission. You know, yeah, that frees her from that mission.
2: So right. <laughs> Right, good point. Um, there were so uh, something I wanted to bring up, uh, just because I really loved this little nugget, um, which I never would have picked up on um, again without new eyes. But there, so right when Han and Lando go on their side adventure while Leia and Chewie go off to Kashyyyk, um, and in that side adventure, you you get told about how. Lando lost the Falcon to Han in a Sabat game after his last Kessel run so like mm-hmm. it's just neat to think like oh cool like that's that is technically canon <laughs> you know like they, they canonized that in uh, in Solo but the biggest part of as they're doing some reflecting I can't remember the name of the character they're with they're with that slicer guy that they're connected with through Talon um, but they're
1: oh, yeah I his name
2: yeah, yeah I don't remember his name either but they're kind of just talking to him about things and and they talk about how Han and Chewie freed a bunch of Zygerian slaves, and I was like, "What? That's that's wild. Um, it's the first like, Z- right? Because obviously, there's the Zygerian slavers in the Clone Wars, um, yeah, and they're first mentioned here in *Heir to the Empire*. And they the the character reflects to Han. He's like, "Yeah, I heard you and Chewie raided the Zygerian slave ship, and then you freed all the slaves and gave them the ship, right? So like, it's." I just like, it's like, yes, like Han Solo has always been the good guy, right? So he and Chewie hate slavery, um, obviously, because Chewie was a slave. And you also learn about Chewie's life debt to Han in this book. So yeah. all these, you know, so these are some really big things in Star Wars canon that are still true to this day, right? So this specific Zygerian slave story um, it hasn't been specifically told, but... The truth of that story persists, right? Um, Han can't stand injustice to that degree and can't help but act, even though he pretends like he doesn't care, right? So, like, that's, that's rooted out in this story. And also, you know, for so much of Star Wars history, we've just assumed Chewie had a life debt to Han. Well, where is that first mentioned? Here in this book, right? So, yep. like, these are things that have endured the 30 years that still are very much part of our Star Wars canon.
1: You want to know another interesting Clone Wars connection to this book? Sure do. There's, uh, I, I don't remember where exactly it was, but it was one of Leia's uh, discussions. They were talking about her uh, doing things and going to the, to Abrogado Ray in the Abrogado system. And that is where uh, General Grievous and the Malevolence took down Plo Koon's fleet in the malevolence trilogy uh the very first season of the clone wars so wow. that was Abragato. oh that's so, so
2: cool
1: yeah it just a just a planetary connection nothing nothing super you know uh you know tightly tied in but it was just an interesting thing to note uh you know mark thompson is the uh the narrator for the the audiobook for this version of it and he just says you know Abregato. and i was like i'm sorry what That sounds familiar. Where's Abrogato? And then I remembered the Clone Wars and I was like, yeah, I just remember Ahsoka saying the Abrogato system. And I was like, which episode was that? So (laughs) I had to go do some digging and I was like, oh yeah, that's where it was. So, um, but yeah, that was, that was kind of an interesting thing. But a lot of these things, these planets, these locations, you know, even the Zygerian slaves, uh, slavers, you know, things seeded way back here in heir to the empire, and then you know, fleshed out and or or seen elsewhere in other material. It's a it's pretty cool.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, so. Leia goes on this side mission with Chewie, essentially to hide out because she's being hunted by the Nogri, which, of course, the Nogri are brought, I mean, specifically the Nogri Rook, who is in this book um, as Thrawn's kind of right hand man. I mean, he's obviously brought back in Rebels as well. Um, But Leia goes on this, you know, kind of side quest with Chewie. And it's, you know, it's Kashyyyk. This is where Kashyyyk becomes first canonized. Coruscant first became canonized in this story, right? So these two uh, fundamental, monumental Star Wars planets were first mentioned, visited, and explored in Heir to the Empire, um, which is just really, really awesome. Um, and I, I enjoy Leia's kind of side quest with Chewie um, to Kashyyyk. And it's really a point for her and Chewie to kind of bond a bit. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's really neat the way Timothy Zahn kind of expands a bit of Wookiee culture, right? He kind of gives us our first foretaste into the Wookiee, the Wookiee civilization. And, and Leia is constantly in awe of their, you know, their cities in the trees. And according to this book, they're very technologically advanced, um, and yet also very natural, um, so, like, Leia is, you know, just kind of astounded at who the, at, at who the Wookiees are. Um, and Leia comes to discover something about herself that she really struggles with, which, of course, you know, Leia still really struggles with um, knowing that she is Darth Vader's daughter. Right. Because yeah. she, of course, hates him, understandably so. He tortured her and destroyed her entire planet. Um, right. But... The Nogri see her as kind of this almost divine like figure, right? She's Lady Vader. Um, because yeah. the, the Nogri, um, I don't remember all the specific details. I don't think there's a ton really given, but it's kind of pointed out that Vader did something that the Nogri, like he kind of helped protect them in a way. Um, and they've sworn this allegiance to him and essentially his bloodline. So yeah. Leia has to. Leia becomes aware that the Nogri would be a great ally for the rebellion, um, for, excuse me, for the New Republic, for that matter. But it's going to require her to take on the identity as Lady Vader. It means that she kind of has to accept that part of her uh, lineage, um, and it's not expounded upon too much in this book. But right, like her story essentially ends with her is promising to go and meet up with the Nogree t- to start negotiations. So I feel like in dark force rising, I don't really remember any of these specifics has been a long time, but I feel like we might get a little bit more of that interior exploration of what does it mean for her to accept the title of lady Vader?
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I totally agree. It's uh, it's an interesting thing and you're right. There's, there's not a lot of information given about the, the no Culture or their their history with, um, with Vader and the Empire uh, and what happened there. Yet there there really isn't at this point in the the trilogy. You know, it's still just scratching the surface uh, in *Heir to the Empire*. But it presents a a very, um, you know, for Leia, uncomfortable and awkward situation where she has to. Lean into her relationship with Darth Vader and kind of, you know, <laughs> play on the fact that yes, I am related to him. I am, I am his daughter, and something she is wanted to avoid completely, you know. Uh, so it's 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 going to be interesting, and and I I don't think she's had time in heir to the empire to sit down and process all of it yet it was just sort of like in the moment like oh we get we got to do this 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 and i got to use this to to start forging the relationship but i think i do think we get some of that in dark force rising where she's like you know the month build up to when she has to meet rook again she starts you know going oh oh dear what does this all mean if I remember correctly, but yeah, it's yeah. Uh, it's an interesting scenario that uh, that she's got herself put in because um, Luke is already you know accepted the fact that he's related to Vader,
2: right? Right, and he-
1: Leia Leia doesn't right quite yet, yeah. So, well, I mean, it would. Yeah, (laughs) I can understand.
2: Right, right. Very different relationships with Vader for the both of them, Um, in their experiences of him. Uh, But yeah, um, well, yeah, it's it's um, it's interesting because, like, I also uh, quick side note: I I read for the first time ever not too long ago. um, uh, Again, if if you follow us on social media, you probably saw I posted about this. But the pretty much every. May for the last few years, I'll read nothing but star Wars books. Cause it's, you know, star Wars month in May. Um, and one of the books I read this past month was, uh, Tatooine ghost. I don't know if you've ever read that Jason. It's, it's, um, Oh my gosh. Yes. Yeah. Troy Denning wrote it. Um, and it came out right shortly after attack of the clones. So before revenge of the Sith came out, it was published in 2003 and it's the story of Han and Leia going to Mos Espa to try to win this painting they need. Um, but she ultimately runs into Kitster and she learns a lot about who Anakin was as a child. Yeah. And she finds Shmi's old journal. Um, and it, it's, it, it's, it's a really great story. Uh, it, it's what, it, One of my biggest critiques of the Legends books I've read in the last year is almost none of them seem to write Leia well. Um and I think that's honestly oftentimes the pitfall of when you only tap men to write stories. Um there are, there were obviously some female authors at that time, but not very many. And um and and it's not to say that men can't write women, certainly not, but it I think it does sadly show that there is a little less uh ingenuity about writing her character as opposed to Han and Luke. Um but that said, Tatooine Ghost was probably the best Leia story I've ever read. Um and it was it's Essentially about this question we've been talking about, Jason, which is her learning to somewhat accept that her father wasn't just Darth Vader, right? That he, there, there was something to him that was quite good and beautiful before his fall from grace. Um, and uh, I, I was commenting uh, to a friend of mine. The re- one of the main things I liked about that book is almost every time we do get Leia in any story, um, be it Legends or even a lot of times in the new canon, her story is always centered around the fact that she's a politician. And those stories just don't work for me. Like They just kind of bore me. Like, uh, like Bloodline, for instance. That's a great new canon book by Claudia Gray. But I love Claudia Gray, and I think that's why I enjoyed the book as much as I did. But it's like, oh, great. Another- you can't
1: stand politics in Star You can't stand the political-centric central- books.
2: Yes. Yeah, <laughs> that's not what I love about Star Wars, right? So, so for Tatooine Ghost to essentially be this exploration um, – because a lot of it is is not only is Leia learning to accept that Anakin was someone – different from Darth Vader, but she's also starting to understand her relationship with the Force. So I was like yeah. I love this story. Like this is finally a Leia story that's not just about Leia the politician. Um, yeah.
1: And the the interesting thing about that book is because is as she begins to accept uh and and work through the you know, the Vader Anakin distinction and begins to learn to accept Anakin uh as as her father that sort of helps her work through and figure out better her force because she's no longer you know kind of uh wary of it because of darth vader you know yep. subconsciously so
2: yeah, yeah well because it's in, very yeah the other really interesting point for, and I'm, I'm sorry i know we're supposed to be talking air to the Empire, but i really love Wing coast <laughs> um uh <laughs> but what,
1: all, i read it once years ago, and it's still something I remember, which is so. right? like,
2: that's awesome. Um, I mean, that, that I mean, that book is almost 20 years old now. It'll be 20 years old yeah. next year. So, uh, well, two more years. Gosh, I really suck at math. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, one of the really interesting points in Tatooine Ghosts as well is Han and Leia are arguing about whether or not to have children because Han wants them because – I think this was a really a brilliant storytelling point for Troy Denning understanding Han's characters. Han really wants kids because he never had a childhood. So the legend story of Han is – so he, he was essentially an orphan that was picked up by a smuggler and, and raised to be a smuggler. So obviously Solo, it seems to imply that he at least knew who his father was. But the legend's backstory of Han is he does no idea where he came from. He never had a family and, and again, like that bloodline her- hereditary way. So for Han and mm. Tatooine Ghost, he really wants children because he wants to be able to give that sort of life to others because he never had it. Um, right. But Leia is very reluctant in the story to have children because she is so worried about her children turning into Vader, right? Because yeah. she knows, you know, if they have children, they're probably going to be strong in the Force because they come from Skywalker blood. So this story ultimately ends with Leia seeing that maybe having children isn't as scary as she thought because anakin was not evil right um and she understands that it took steps for him to get to where he was to become darth vader um all that aside if uh if you haven't read heir to the empire check that out but if if you haven't also checked out tatooine ghost you might really enjoy that book too if if you want a cool leia story uh around her relationship to, to her father um yeah absolutely brilliant book and and Jason, the, again, sorry for this quick little side tangent. What I really enjoyed with reading all those legends novels this past month is I read. I mean, I read a couple of the books from the old Han Solo trilogy by Brian Daly, which came out in 1978 and 79, all the way mm-hmm. up to um, you know, Tatooine Ghost was probably the newest one I read, which was 2003. It is n- interesting to see how different eras of Star Wars books interpret Star Wars, right? Because as more and as more stories are told or as more medium are created. It opens up so many more doors, um, and yeah. and I, I just think that's like a fascinating part of, of, of Star Wars history is just fascinating to me. <laughs> so, yeah. um,
1: well, and to sort of build off of that and get us back onto the um, the end of the Empire discussion, it's interesting to me. Something I noticed uh, while while listening to the the book is so many of the uh, reused lines and rep. References, direct references to film events uh, in this book. It's it's definitely something that I, I felt very, very deliberate in the way that Timothy Zahn uh, approached this, is to make those distinct and direct connections to the films because it's like, hey, this is a Star Wars thing, and we need you to, you know, this is designed to help you buy into the fact that this is the continuing adventures of these characters uh, and so there's very very much deliberate and uh, uh you know recollections of specific events and reusing of film dialogue uh in the book uh, some of it is used for humorous effect other other times it's more like oh that's just a character trait you know they say that kind of thing you know but um it was just a very interesting thing to note throughout the book and i think i think he worked it in pretty well even though it seemed deliberate to me it didn't necessarily seem too out of place uh but it was just something that i noticed uh you know, I listened to this book essentially over the course of three days. Uh, it's a thirteen-hour audiobook, and I listened to it all in like three days. So, uh, I think that might have had something to do with the fact that I noticed it sort of peppered throughout the whole thing. Um, you know, but I just thought it was interesting because we still get. References and reused lines and other material and things like that. And it's almost now, you know, obviously, you know, I have a bad feeling about this is essentially an Easter egg uh, for Star Wars fans. And, you know, 1138 has to be used somewhere. Um, but that's, you know, sort of an Easter egg and, and for our own amusement. But it seemed very deliberate and in many cases, uh, you know, a a more, I, I don't know, serious Decision to reuse stuff is a is the right, where you know way to say it. But you know there seemed to be more care taken in like, well, we're going to reference this line, uh, or or reuse you know reference this moment or reuse this line in the book because we want to make sure everyone re, you know remembers these characters um, and you know where they came from and who they were in the movies. So I was want to you know curious to know if you noticed that at all. Or if I was just picking up on something because I was looking for it.
2: No, I think that's a um, a pretty prevalent thing in the legends stories. Actually, is uh, there's a lot of like callbacks to like, hey, remember this from the movies? Um, yeah. And interestingly enough, I remember I, I pointed this out to my buddy Greg a couple of years ago, and you know. Uh, Greg has read all Star Wars and and, and Greg's also a literature buff. So like it it sits with him differently than me and he made a great point. He said, you know, a lot of those old legends books that came out in the early to mid 90s, right? You still didn't have ready access to watching Star Wars at home, right? The home releases weren't available still, you know, um, they weren't in theaters anymore. So by these stories calling you back to those moments – it allows you to remember them more readily because, again, it's not like today where you can just literally watch any Star Wars item you want on your phone, your TV, your computer, right, at any time. So um, I, I thought that was a, you know, a really astute observation that Greg made about, you know, well, like at that time, you couldn't watch them whenever. So this is a way of reminding you of particular parts of those stories. Um, so, you know, while it seems a little heavy handed today, 30 years later, it wasn't in
1: 1991. Um, so no, and I, I and I, I think that's that's a very important distinction to make. If if you haven't ever read it and you're a newer Star Wars fan, you're going to see some of that. But that's by design, and it's you know designed to help bring movies that were not readily available back to your remembrance, uh, and you know reconnect you to characters and events that you knew, you know. And it's I think it's very deliberate and very. Uh, was a big part of why they wanted to continue this. So, um, and it's, it's just an interesting thing because I, I think that sort of faded or, uh, was approached differently as we moved into, you know, further areas of legends books, you know, even in the nineties and things like that, when, you know, VHS stuff came out after the special edition, you know that kind of stuff was used almost, you know, more throwaway or more in in jest, you know, because people had easier access to the movies again. So, uh, whereas I think in in the older stuff, in particular, it's it's definitely more of a uh, a, a story construction point. Yeah. Um, so.
2: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um. So, Jason, do you have any like last? uh any big major things you feel like we we haven 't brought up yet that you want to bring up about Heir to the empire um i've i 've have, I have one scene i 'd like to just bring up just because uh it, it was probably one of my favorite moments in the book itself um and you know I invite you to do the same if you have anything uh you want to bring up um,
1: just a just a brief question yeah. uh a brief comment is um I like the introduction of Talon Card. I think he's a, mm. a neat character, um, the the gentleman smuggler, if you will. Um, I I think he was a, a fun character uh, and someone who it was really interesting to to watch how he tried to balance the line, but now has to make the decision. Yeah. Um, yeah. So obviously we don't get a ton with him, but he was uh, sort of a nice middleman to give us. Perspective on both, you know, factions in this book, and and bring the factions together in a way that now the New Republic are aware that there's a Grand Admiral still out there. So,
2: yeah. Um. Oh, quick little interesting side note in Tatooine Ghost, that Chimera is actually um, on the tail of Han and Leia, but they don't know who the Grand Admiral is in charge. Like, there's a mystery to it, which is kind of cool because it's like if you we as Star Wars readers know it's Grand Admiral Thrawn shit, but they don't meet him yet because he's still yet to rise to power. But anyway. um,
1: Nice.
2: Yeah. So that was actually kind of a cool little connection, too. I was like, wow, this is so neat. Like the Chimera is here. Tatooine,
1: like a prequel to Heir to the Empire.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it takes place because it was obviously – it's short actually – it falls in the timeline shortly after the courtship of Princess Leia, so after Han and Leia get married, they're they're very much newlyweds at the time. But um, yeah, great, great, great book. Obviously, you not clearly love yeah. it. <laughs> um, yes, but uh, the, the last the, the the one thing I just wanted to mention is that there's a really cool and, and kind of connecting to what we've been talking about here with all this you know callback stuff. Um, interestingly enough, one of my favorite scenes in the book is essentially a callback. In so far as Luke goes back to Dagobah in search of answers, right? He's yeah. he's trying to understand, you know, again what what's his place here? What how should he move forward with with uh, training Jedi for the future? So he returns to Dagobah in hopes of uh, finding some answers. And he also knows that there's. I, I think he's there to track down some Dark Side. I'm going to just essentially call it a wayfinder because it's similar to the wayfinder from episode nine. Um, So when he goes there, you know, he sees Yoda's hut He's essentially been taken over by the forest, which is like a reminder of how, you know, naturally life just overtakes in the place of loss. Um, Yeah. But then Luke goes into the dark cave again and he has this vision of a woman holding his lightsaber on the sail barge and killing him. Um, And it's essentially he has this vision of Mara. Uh, He hasn't. He obviously hasn't met her yet. Um, But I just. I mean, obviously, you know, Jason. I love Dagobah. Uh, So an opportunity to go back to that planet to me was just really cool. And again, it makes sense that Luke would go there in search of answers. And he has this, you know, prem this this pretty profound experience in that cave again of something that's awaiting him in his future. his fate is. Somehow intertwined with the fate of this unknown red-haired woman. So, um, I just mm-hmm. I really appreciated that part of the story.
1: Yeah, yeah i I thought the vision was was uh, was pretty interesting. Uh, I I I liked the the process of getting to that vision more than I liked the vision itself. But I honestly, I think my favorite part of that whole sequence was him. Finding and sort of picking through the remains of Yoda's hovel, mm, um, yeah, because it is something where it's like you know, here in the desert, you know, the, the um, it even mentioned you know he's from Tatooine. He didn't even think that you know the the swamp would reclaim the hut uh, because you know Ben's hovel is still standing to this day because of that's just the way the desert operates and it it sort of uh, in a in a way, preserves things like that, uh, whereas the swamp takes it back. Mm. And it was just an interesting way, not only to just you know kind of say, ah, yes, that's exactly how it, how that works here in the desert, you know, since I live in one. But it's also um, just an interesting way to to note that that hovel and that that place of, of residence. Only stayed while there was life there because Yoda would have to constantly be, you know, rebuilding, repacking things, you know, the the mud and things like that uh, to maintain his home, to maintain his existence there. And now that 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 life is no longer there, he's still there through the force, but that life is no longer residing in this point the the environment has moved on and it's sort of like giving Luke the uh the physical representation that he has to start moving forward instead of looking back so the belonging you seek
2: is not behind you it is (laughs) ahead
1: yes exactly exactly (laughs) so I I uh I really like that sort of uh not necessarily symbolism but that uh picture of of the lesson that he has to learn mm. through this.
2: So. Um,
1: yeah, for sure.
2: Uh, any, anything else you want to bring up before we wrap this conversation on Heir to the Empire?
1: No, not particularly. Uh, just to say that uh, I enjoyed revisiting this enough that I have uh, put the subsequent books in the trilogy on my wish list on Audible so um nice. I'll that way I have quick access to them when I get another credit so there you go <laughs> I'll finish the trilogy eventually so
2: yeah that's awesome um yeah I mean like you were kind of saying Jason I mean I think it's a great opening book but you know more than anything you know this this 30 year old story has just so much stuff that became the foundation through which Star Wars canon was built for the next, you know, 20 plus years, you know, everything was built upon this story. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, that's a pretty endearing and, an enduring thing. Um, so, yeah, you know, uh, very curious what other folks uh, love about this book. Cause again, I know how beloved it is and, and uh, you know, I mean, I apologize if, if, if I, I came across too crass. You know what? It's because it's just not a favorite book of mine. But at the same time, it is really fun, and it's it's mm-hmm. a really cool book. Um, so for those of you who really love this book, I'd love to know why. Like, tell me, tell me some of the things that really worked for you and that, that continue to uh, resonate with you all these thirty years later. Um, so. Because uh, we always love to hear that stuff.
1: Exactly, you know. It's you know, it's definitely one of those things where it's not a perfect story, but it's a great. It's still a fun story, and you know, it 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 became popular and successful enough to you know essentially serve as the foundation for Star Wars stories going forward in the the books and comics medium for the next. You know, twenty plus years, and is still resonating with new content today. That people are referencing it, even though it is still that, even though it's now a legends book. You know, so so much so that Thrawn has been re you know you know co opted and recast as himself in a new new ish role for the new canon. So it's. The impact and the resonate the resonance of this story is still being felt through star Wars today, and so for that kind of historical look back at it, I think it's important to take note of that, and that's why we did this podcast so
2: <laughs> darn right <laughs> <laughs> um, well yeah, so uh, there you go, there are just some of our. Overall takeaways. Revisiting this book, um, Jason. Sorry, I meant to ask you this at the beginning of the show, but had you read *Heir to the Empire* in the past, or was this your yes. first? Okay, I thought so. Okay, no, I, I've, I've read
1: it. I've read it maybe two or three times in the past before, um, but it, it it had been a little bit. Uh, so it was nice to revisit it uh, for this podcast.
2: Yeah, good, good. Um, well, before we go, we have a poll for you for next week. Um, in in light of this, you know, you've got, you know, thanks to heir to the empire, you had 20 plus years of legends novels. We'd like to know which one, and this is a hard question and we intend it to be, but which star Wars novel legends novel is your favorite. Um, yeah. if, if you have to say a trilogy, that's fine, but we are more specifically looking for one book. So even if you love the Thrawn trilogy, if, if there's one particular book in there that is really your bread and butter, we'd love to know which one. So we're really looking for a specific book, but if you've got to say a trilogy, that's fine.
1: Right, exactly. So I'm I'm very interested to see what people say. I have to go back and, and review all of the Legends books I have read over the years in order to answer this question. So uh, it's going to be a hard decision for me for next week. But yeah, I'm very interested and curious to see what people think. Yeah, likewise. I'm I'm (laughs) super excited. Yeah, me too. But Carl, if people want to weigh in on uh, this poll or give their thoughts on Heir to the Empire and the Thrawn Trilogy in general, where can people get in contact with us?
2: Well, of course, we are on Twitter at Wampas Lair. We're on Instagram at the underscore Wampas Lair, um, on Facebook at Lair Podcast, and you can always email us at WampasLairPodcast at gmail.com.
1: All right. Anything else before we close down this episode, sir? That'll do it for me. All right. Well, we're going to go look at our art for preparation of next week's episode, and we'll be back... Thank you everyone so much for listening to this episode of the Wampas Lair Podcast. This has been episode number 428, and the Empire, 30th Anniversary. For Carl, I'm Jason, and we'll see you next time here in the Wampas Lair.